This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Thanks, Dewey. Today we're talking with Daryl G. Hart, visiting professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California, and the author of many significant books, among which are The Lost Soul of American Protestantism, a biography of John Williams and Nevin, and A Secular Faith. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Daryl, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. First, for those who don't know and haven't read or heard, tell us a little bit about how you became Reformed, because you, you haven't always been Reformed. Uh, boy, that's... Um, I was grew up in a, a Baptist fundamentalist dispensationalist home, and I was taking a course in existential philosophy at Temple and had no clue as how to try to put this together with my faith. It wasn't that I was questioning my faith. I just couldn't make any sense of it, what to make of this as a Christian. And a friend of mine at the time who had been reading some Francis Schaeffer told me to read Schaeffer, so I started reading Schaeffer. I went to Libri, and then I just continued to be more interested in Reformed things, went to Westminster, Ended up studying Machen in graduate school, and um, I've become more and more Reformed, I think. Some people don't think that, but I think I've become more and more Reformed <laughs> throughout the course of those studies. It's been a um, kind of a, a, a very gradual uh, pilgrimage, and for that, I'm, I'm grateful. One of the developments in your intellectual life that you have described in, for example, The Lost Soul of American Protestantism is a movement away from in a sense, a kind of uh, generic Reformed theology to a more specific approach to Reformed theology, which you describe as confessionalism. And you distinguish, for example, between confessional and non-confessional uh, over against liberal and conservative. Talk about that distinction and and how you came to that and what that distinction means to you. Well, first, it's an odd word to use confessional uh, because it suggests that it's just about confessions or creeds. And Reformed creeds and confessions do teach about things that are at the heart of confessionalism, namely the church and worship. But confessionalism really stands for ecclesial or churchly Reformed Christianity or Reformed Protestantism. It can also—I mean, confessional Lutheranism stands for the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, those who take the Reformed churches or the Lutheran churches seriously also take the creeds and confessions seriously. But to talk about confessionalism, people think you're just talking about doctrine. Mm -hmm. And and. Well, you're talking about doctrine of the church, you're talking about doctrine of worship, you're also talking about the practice of those things. Part of the way I came to this was in American history, uh, cultural historians of the 19th century have actually used terms like pietist and liturgical or pietist and confessional to describe two different approaches to American politics and the sort of Whig evangelical consensus that was going on. People who descended from it were liturgical or confessional, and those were some high church types, Mercersburg, Anglicans, some old school Presbyterians, though, were in that group, as well as some German and Dutch Reformed. And so I tried to adopt that language that political historians actually use. So I, it's actually a political historical concept, not necessarily a, a churchly one, even though you've done more with that in, in your own book, Recovering the Reformed Confession. So, so it's really trying to think about 
reformed Christianity apart from the approaches that we generally have and the three approaches that are prominent, and I'm drawing here upon Nick Waldersdorf, what he said, and George Marsden, and what he drew upon Nick Waldersdorf, we have a doctrinalist reformed Christianity, we have a culturalist, and we have a pietist or experiential. And none of those um, ways of looking at reformed Christianity actually ever get close to the church, it seems to me. They, mm. they may all assume the church is there, but they don't necessarily take the church seriously. And, and in my work on Machen, who was, I think, a very good churchman, um, and oftentimes referring to the constitution of the church and what formally was allowed and what wasn't allowed in the church, I mean, I became attuned to the nature of ecclesiology in ways that I hadn't been before. And it seems to me Reformed ecclesiology is different from other ecclesiologies, but it also seems to me that to be a Christian apart from being a member of the church is kind of meaningless or ascetic or Gnostic or something. We have plenty of people who think they're Christians who aren't members of churches or whose membership in the church they wear very lightly, but it seems to me if the church is the embodiment of or the body of Christ, it seems to me we really do need to take the formal church, the institutional church, seriously, and that's what I'm trying to do with, with confessionalism. Is this a, an area where, for example, confessionalism might be distinct from the young restless and reformed movement or the, the uh, young Calvinist movement that, that we're reading about in Time magazine and elsewhere. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think it's hard to actually think of confessionalism as a movement. It's, it's, a, it's a fellowship or it's a communion, mm-hmm. um, but it's not a movement because, again, its identity is in the church as far as membership in the church, the vows that members take, the vows that officers take, the sort of oversight that officers in the church have over people, the, the sort of assemblies that happen to to govern the life of the church and the kind of gatherings that, that take place weekly that sustain believers through their pilgrimage. I mean, so some of my interest in worship is also fed into my interest in confessionalism because it seems to me that I, I became interested in, in ecclesial questions and thinking about the worship wars and seeing what was being done in some of the congregations where I actually served or was a member. So all those things have informed my my work on this. When I first became Reformed, uh, the paradigm that I learned and with which I worked and in which I lived for a long time, maybe from, say, 1980 until, you know, who knows, sometime into the late 90s, so for, you know, 15, 16, 17 years, was the liberal and conservative paradigm. Mm -hmm. So I analyzed everything in terms of liberals and conservatives, and uh, that was – sort of the way I'd been taught, and and, uh, that seemed to be the accepted way of of analyzing things. And I think that's the way a lot of people look at the ecclesiastical world. They sort of divide it in half. What's wrong with that? Why why aren't you satisfied with that? Well, because, simply put, evangelicals share far more in common with liberals than people or they acknowledge, and therefore— Such as? Can you— well, examples? Um, the importance of experience. Doctrine is not as important to evangelicals. I mean, there was a time, the new evangelical movement after the 1940s, where things like inerrancy were, was, was important or things like that were important. So certain doctrines have become important. But both evangelicals and liberals have made a move to try to gain a consensus among themselves. And it has involved trying to find a lowest common denominator or a generic expression of Christianity that around which all Protestants can unite for some kind of cause, whether evangelistic or social. 
And what I think too many scholars of American Christianity have not recognized is that evangelicals and liberals are engaged in a, in a similar project in that way. Evangelicals will retain the, the supernatural more than liberals will, but they both gut Christianity of the harder aspects, the ecclesial aspects, the, the doctrinal and sometimes liturgical aspects in order to achieve some kind of lowest common denominator upon around which now we can all rally for a Billy Graham crusade or a get out the vote for something. I mean, both are engaged in that. And the other way I came to this, too, was to realize that during Machen's lifetime, there were people who were opposed to him who were not liberal who were evangelical. Mm. They didn't regard doctrine as highly as Machen did. But people like Charles Erdman or Robert E. Speer, the head of foreign missions in the Presbyterian Church, these men were not classically liberals in any sense, and yet they were evangelical. Now, the way that a lot of people tried to explain that difference between Machen and them was that he was mean, so that's why they, they couldn't support him. Well, actually, what, what was going on was they didn't regard the church or doctrine in the same way that Machen did, because as evangelicals, they didn't think of Christianity or Reformed Christianity in the way that Machen did. They thought of it chiefly in terms of experience. Right. So, and morality. And, and Machen was all about trying to gut that from the Presbyterian Church. So you have a category of Christians who aren't liberal, but who aren't confessional, and they're evangelical, but they're also willing to live with liberals oftentimes. And this is what's happened to the neo-evangelical movement. People don't realize, but I think most of the editors of Christianity Today are members or officers in the Episcopal Church USA. Yeah. The Episcopal Church USA is is one of the the more problematic <laughs> yeah. communions that we have in American Protestantism. And yet the movement, the neo-evangelical movement that was supposed to preserve Christianity for us, conservative Christianity for us, you know, the, the people who are part of those institutions now are oftentimes now in mainline churches that are far worse than they were even in the 1940s. Which seems to be evidence, then, of the continuity between liberal, non-confessional liberals and non-confessional right. conservatives. One of the things that you have written that surprised me the most, I think, is, well, I guess there are two things. One, that liberals are, and historically were, devoted to a kind of religious experience, which, because of the way I came to faith, which I think is probably not too far distant from the way you came to faith, that is, in some version of American fundamentalism, the only people I knew who were interested in religious experience tended to be you know, socially and theologically, religiously conservative. And the liberals I knew didn't seem to have any interest in, in religious experience. But historically, that hasn't been so. And the other thing that, that I learned from you is that liberals had a strong interest in public, social, and, and private morality. So that, uh, you know, as you say, experience and morality were two of the pillars of religious liberalism in the first half of the 20th century. Today, when we think of religious liberals, we don't really think of those, those things. But those were impulses in that, in that movement. Yeah. I, I mean, I still think that liberals are moralistic. They're moralistic about things that conservatives are not. So, I mean, they're moralistic about a woman's right to choose. They're yeah. moralistic about— um, They've changed the issues. —about gay marriage. But the stance is still the same. Right. And the definition of what it is to be a Christian is still roughly the same. It's, and and they get sentimental. I mean, so religious experience is still there. So they don't 
oftentimes they don't think intellectually through some of those complicated moral questions. They just get sentimental about it and, and sort of say, oh, we need to find room for this kind of experience. These people are sincere. They have good intentions. We need to embrace them and affirm them and all this. So it still seems to me that religious experience and morality are very important to liberal Protestantism or, or mainline Protestantism. And conservatives. Right. And so that's what binds them together. I mean, that, that helps explain, doesn't it, the interchange uh, between the one group and the other, right. the, the cross-traffic, which if you don't understand the fundamental unity of liberalism and conservatism, that they're really two ends on the same spectrum, you can't really explain the cross-traffic right. between the two movements. Right. And one other interesting example of this that I still would like to do more with to write about, but I'm still struck by mid-20th century mainline church historians in the United States were writing often about the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening, so the, the, the revivals of Edwards and, and Whitfield and Tennant. And you have mainline Protestants whom you would think at that era when Billy Graham is achieving his fame and revivalism has a certain resonance for the mainline that is suspicious. I mean, this is something that, you know, we're a little uneasy about this enthusiastic stuff. But these mainline church historians are writing very positively about the First Great Awakening Hmm. and the revivals. The reason I think why they're doing it is because the revivals of the First Great Awakening as much as we want to say that they were Calvinistic. Ultimately, though, they were much more about experience and conversion and not following by doctrinal or church order. And what these church historians, I think, saw or intuited was that revivalism was a way of washing away or or eroding the importance of church order, polity, ecclesiology, doctrine, subscription. And so faced with the people in the in the in the first great awakening who were trying to defend presbyterian polity and presbyterian creeds versus the revivalists who were saying no we've got the spirit and we've got to take it the spirit wherever we can and let's not get bogged down in polity or creeds 20th century mainline church historians say oh we're with the liberals on that one because the liberals were actually the revivalists or the evangelical types what people don't appreciate really is the radical nature of much of what happened in the so-called First Great Awakening. What happened to, for example, Reformed worship? That coming into the 18th century, Reformed people were psalm-singing, instrument-less worshiping people following the Directory of Public Worship. By the end of the 18th century, the end of all of that is is in sight. It's it's happening. Uh, Edwards helps to weaken psalm singing. You've got the introduction of paraphrases of mm-hmm. the psalms. Uh, you, you have the beginning of the introduction of instruments into public worship. And in our time, the First Great Awakening, as you know, as, as I know, to criticize anything about the First Great Awakening is heresy against, you know, for some people, the Catholic faith. It's unthinkable that anyone would would have any criticisms. And yet from a confessional or confessionalist point of view, there are some things. And, and those are some of the better parts of revivalism. I mean, introducing Watts's paraphrases of the Psalms of King David is, you know, you might get some legitimate debate about whether that should happen or not. But when you look at some of the religious experiences of those converted, even the Tennant family in particular, Ned Landsman, very good American mm. historian yeah, at, at, at Stony, SUNY Stony Brook, um, has done some work on colonial Scottish, Scotch-Irish culture, and he has chapters on American religion. And he, he recounts some stories 
regarding the tenants. That will put your hair, if you have hair, on end. Uh, it's just, it's just, I don't see how you can give the first Great Awakening a pass. It's, it's scary. There's a forgotten group in that period that, uh, you know, for example, if you read Trinterud's history uh, of that period, he, he d- devotes one chapter to the old side, right? The, the, the withered branch, he calls and, it. Yeah, the title is The Withered Branch. And, of course, Trinterud is a mainline uh, American Presbyterian historian, I think president of the American Society of, of Church History. and uh, He actually also, I don't know if you know this, but he writes the report for the Presbytery of Los Angeles hmm. that prohibits the, the original Fuller faculty, many of whom were PCUSA, from sort of transferring their credentials out there. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's a really curious thing. So We're talking with Daryl G. Hart, and uh, you're listening to Office Hours of Westminster Seminary, California. When we come back, we're going to talk about and try to answer a question. As, and it's an important question, difficult one. So I want to give Daryl some time to think about this. Why is it that the confessional and even more broadly, the conservative reformed churches are so small in this country? Is it something wrong with them or is it something wrong with the country? We'll be right back after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, Daryl, before the break, I ask you a question about uh, why there are only 500,000 or so American Presbyterians. Why is that? Some people would say, well, you people simply aren't pious enough, you don't love Jesus enough, you don't do evangelism, and that's your problem. If you just get out and do evangelism and and be more like us, then there'd be more than 500,000 of you. I would say it is, um, I'm not, I don't want to give Presbyterians a pass uh, and that we've done everything well. We also have to recognize that ever since, I think, the First Great Awakening, we have lived in a culture that has been much more inclined to be enthusiastic and to regard enthusiasm or good intentions or good experiences highly. I mean, I I think I've written about this somewhere um, or at least given chapel talks here at Westminster about this, but people in Philadelphia who are huge Phillies fans still don't like Mike Schmidt because he didn't wear his enthusiasm for the game on his sleeve. He he just went about his business and sometimes beat himself up, sometimes beat himself up in the press, but he didn't have that pump-in-the-fist kind of animation that Americans like to see from their athletes. And Schmidt was a third baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. Just in case people Hall of Famer. Are listening. Of, okay, that's of, all. And one of the second hero of my life after Dick Allen, who was the fir- third baseman when I was growing up with the Phillies. So there is a culture in the United States that favors informality and experience over the sort of order and decency that Reformed Christianity needs. Or should have. Right. That needs for it to do its work well. Okay. Another factor here, and Lee Schmidt has a book on the communion seasons called Something Fairs. Holy Fairs. Holy Fairs, yes. 
Um, it's a wonderful study of, of communion seasons in Scotland and their transference to the, the United States. And he makes a really brilliant observation that reform piety is just hard. What reform piety did was to eliminate a lot of the festivals of the Christian year, Christmas, Lent. I mean, that's not a festival. Easter is a, is a kind of one. So there are all these holy days throughout the year that, that would give people a day off. It would give them a chance to party. And Reformed Christianity said, no, we're going to go away from the church calendar. We're going to go with 52 holy days a year. Every Sabbath is a holy day, and that's going to be a day devoted to rest and worship, not necessarily to partying. Now, I think Reformed Christians maybe could party a little bit more <laughs> on the Lord's Day in a, in a kind of fitting way. Um, and Ann and I, my wife and I, we try to treat Sundays a little bit more as a feast day and so have Ben and Jerry's ice cream on that day and not the rest of the day. So, In between the services. Right. Exactly. But but there is a kind of rigor, solemnity, and um, difficulty about reform piety that makes it unappealing. But the people who came here in the 17th century were, many of them, right, devout, serious-minded Puritans from England, and yet you're describing a country that doesn't seem to have much connection with them at all. What happened between the colonial Puritans who would have identified with much of what you're describing mm-hmm. and said, yes, that's, you know, that's who we are and that's what we're about. When did the change take place and what happened and why? Well, I still think the Great Awakening, I don't, want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm always beating up evangelicals, and I know it always sounds that way. I do think the Great Awakening did seriously change things, and people like Jonathan Edwards, who was trying to re- recover older Puritan forms and keep them alive and sustain them, thought the revivals would be a way of doing that. Personally, I think he bet on the wrong horse. So the Great Awakening unleashes a kind of enthusiasm, and then the the American Revolution and the freedom of religion that happens after that gives, it seems to me, gives revivalism the upper hand. The way to grow your churches, the way to expand your churches is through revivalism, is through itineracy, is through this kind of religious experience that comes with revivals. And Baptists and Methodists become the fastest-growing churches in the land in the 19th century. So there was a great change in the 19th century as well as as the 18th century. I was Because I was sort of thinking about, you know, Nat Hatch's democratization mm-hmm. thesis. Right. So can you talk about that a little bit? How, how does that connect with what happened in the 18th century? Well, I mean, the 19th century is more explicitly populist mm-hmm. and anti-elitist, more democratic. That, but I think that the seeds of a kind of egalitarian... Christianity are there in the in the Great Awakening because the Holy Spirit and the work sure. of the Holy Spirit in conversion is a great leveler of yeah. any kind of distinction between officer or church member. All believers are on the same footing with this experience, and those who don't have it, well, then you know that's where you get the unconverted ministry sure. uh, complaints of, of Gilbert Tennant. But then after the democratic revolutions of the late late 18th century, American Protestantism, as Hatch observes quite well in this book, takes on a more populist dimension so that Christianity loses touch, at least Protestantism loses touch with the higher ranges of culture in the United States in a way that maybe it had been part of a cultural establishment in the colonial period. So the democratic revolution is another kind of turn that accelerates the popularity of revivalism and makes Christianity a very popular public idiom for the United States all the way down, I would argue, to the 1950s during the Cold War when we're adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance and 
in God We Trust who are coins as a way of fighting communism. This is the American way. It's the Protestant way. And revivalism, even in the Billy Graham stripe during the 1950s, is very much part of a, of a civil religion. So there are, there are lots of cultural connections here that we can't explore really well in this interview. But you think it's legitimate to say that there were significant changes in colonial America and in post-colonial America, in, in Jackson, under you know, Jacksonian democracy and after, that made this culture less hospitable to what you and I, I think, would say is confessional reform Christianity than it would have been prior to those changes. Yes. I mean, I think that's, that's fair. I, Some I people would say that's a cop-out, though. How, how, do we, how would you respond to that? Well, if we have to exegete the culture, as we're <laughs> sometimes told to do, and not, you know, before we exegete the Bible, then we better exegete some of this historical okay. material as well. I mean, I don't think it, it is necessarily a cop-out. It's only a cop-out if history doesn't matter. Right. I mean, the great problem for confessional Protestants— but it's also a problem for Roman Catholics. This isn't just our problem, is that church membership doesn't matter in our society. What matters far more than the church is the state or all, a number of other kinds of um, – uh, I mean, I think sometimes rooting for a specific team matters more. And at times it does even for me. I get mm. really excited when the Phillies win and I get really depressed when they lose. We invest ourselves in our identity in all sorts of things. And churches have very little power the way they did in state church environments. So for churches to comp compel their members to do certain things is a difficult thing, especially if, if you discipline someone and they can just go down the road and, and rejoin with another church, if church membership even matters that much to them. So, I mean, this is just the way, this is the society we live in. Church membership doesn't matter. I don't know how culturally to make it matter more. All I know is that in our congregations, we should try to think about how to make church membership matter more, how to establish and embody the communion of the saints in these places, how to you know, govern as elders, how to respect our elders, how to encourage people as elders, all those sorts of things are things that we need to work on. And it's also difficult, too, because of the way that we live our lives. I mean, if you live in a suburban context and you're commuting 10 to 20 miles to your church, you don't see the rest of your church members for the whole week. I mean, fellowship transcends where we live, but the way we live our lives, it means that our attachments to our communion on Sunday are um, very thin. So I, <laughs> there's no way that we can, we, can, we can fix all that, and the church isn't called to fix industrial, suburban car culture. I mean, it can only do certain things. So You are sometimes described as a contrarian. What is that, and why do people describe you that way? Um, can a cat lover really be a contrarian? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think for a guy to admit to being a cat lover is, I think, contrarian. I actually think um, that I'm much more of a contrarian in print than I am in person. Now, that could be the kind of reassurance that we give ourselves. But, I think that's true, by the but way. I think it's usually true for most contrarians. That you, I mean, I remember we, um, my wife and I went go to the Mencken Day festivities every year in Baltimore – and um, Christopher Hitchens was there as the speaker. And uh, in per you know, in print, he's pretty provocative. But mm. in person, he's provocative. But also, it's easier when you see the person, see their facial expressions, et cetera, to take some of it. So I think that's partly what's going on. But I have been inspired, perhaps wrongly, but I've been inspired by Machen, who, who would have been in some—if um, he was called mean, he must have been a contrarian of some kind. Which I find— 
sort of bizarre that anyone I, I understand that for political reasons, someone might call Machen mean in order to marginalize him. Right. But if you actually read what Machen wrote, and if you know anything about him, there wasn't a mean bone in any meaningful sense, in any real sense, right. in his body. I mean, I often you know, exhort students to read Machen as an example of winsomeness. Right. Now, I think the only time you really do see, see any meanness is, is in his private correspondence, where he, he does get frustrated and angry. But the other person who's, who's been something of an inspiration, as a writer at least, but also his ideas, is H.L. Mencken and who, another contrarian. So there's something about me clearly – that resonates with being contrary, and I'll be glad to own up to that. But I also think we would be impoverished without contrarians. Now, whether we could I don't, that doesn't mean that my contrariness is necessary for the health of the church or <laughs> our time. I'm not trying to say that. But there's been a, a significant contribution made by contrarians. And what I do like about contrarians is that you know where they stand. And I've heard a lot of people say that about me, that even though they disagree with me, they like that there's a kind of clarity. I wish I was as clear in my own mind at times. I think I've heard or read Mark Knowles saying things like that about you yes. on, the, on the backs of books. Yes, yes. Obtuse <laughs> was, was, a, was a word that Mark used. So, What are you working on right now? I have just finished a history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for our 75th anniversary. The, the tentative title is Between the Times, and it's really a study of the church between it's it, trying to do justice or to give some attention to the history of the OPC after our founding. We've given some attention to our founding because that's the time of Machen, and that's the time of the controversies, that's kind of a great story. But what happened afterwards? And so it, it runs from roughly 1945 until 1986, 1990. And there were some difficult years there for the OPC. And part of the recovery, I think, of confessionalism in the OPC is bound up with a recovery of the early history of the OPC and Machen and Van Til and Murray and those guys. So um, that's been an interesting project for me to work on, especially since I've dedicated a lot of my thoughts to, to Machen. So to see how Machen's legacy played out has been very fun for me. And now I need to turn to a global history of Calvinism. Uh, it sounds quite pretentious, but it's kind of once over lightly of Calvinism from 1500 to the present around the world. And I'm looking forward to trying to make something accessible and a good read that's semi-scholarly but also semi-popular, and we'll see how that, how that goes. You are the editor or co-editor of a thoroughly disreputable journal <laughs> to which I have contributed and, and others as well. And uh, the name of the journal is The Nicotine Theological Journal. Well, we could have called it Tobacco Theological <laughs> Journal. That, how would that have been? So, yeah, and uh, someone said, I don't remember who it was, that uh, if the title Nicotine Troubles You, think of him as Augustine's forgotten brother. Yeah, Nicotin. Yeah. George Marsden actually Was that Marsden? Oh, good. Yeah. So what is the NTJ, the Nicotine Theological Journal? And to give it a plug, where, where can you get it? <laughs> That's our plug bell. You can go to oldlife.org, which is the blog of um, the Old Life Theological Society, which is the sponsor of the Nicotine Theological Journal. And what's that blog address again? Just oldlife.org. Okay. And John Meather and I, my conspirator, co-conspirator in crime, we have long thought about reform faith and practice and trying to promote it in certain ways. And we've both been involved in theological education and have had informal conversations with students, and sometimes that's involved smoking. And we have found that 
oftentimes smoking um, is an enhancement to theological conversation. Even if those, those there aren't smoking, that they kind of benefit from the secondhand smoke. Machen was, a, was actually a believer in this. There's a great letter that Stonehouse includes in his biography of Machen having all the guys together their, their last year at seminary together in the room, and they're smoking, and he's they're eating oranges. It's really a wonderful quotation. So we, we, we do think that tobacco provides a kind of conviviality that we try to encourage in this pretentious thing called a journal. It's really only a newsletter, and it's supposed to be somewhat lighthearted, but also contrarian. And now we have a little bit of a online presence with the blog. All right. So if you're if you're interested in finding out more in an informal way about what this confessionalism business is, and uh, who Hart is, and and what he's about, what he's saying, and what John Meather. Uh, who is uh, teaches church history and is the librarian at RTS Orlando, what, what they're up to, and others are saying in the Nicotine Theological Journal, you can find it at oldlife.org. One last question. What is the future, do you think, of Reformed Christianity in North America? We know the, we know the uh, past, and we have some idea of the present just by counting heads mm-hmm. and looking at some of the, the trends that we've maybe talked about already. What do you think the future is for yeah. Reformed Christianity in North America, particularly confessional Reformed well, Christianity? Well, on the one hand, I don't think it's necessarily encouraging because I don't know that the trends that I think started with the First Great Awakening are dissipating, really. And if we're, if we're going to recover confessionalism, uh, I do try to remind people it took us 250 years to get here. It's going to take at least 250 to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the immediate future is not going to be great. On the other hand, when I was a seminarian at Westminster, Philadelphia, uh, Bob Godfrey was one of my heroes then. We weren't even talking about ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. We weren't talking about about worship. We were talking oftentimes about justification, properly so. We were talking about inerrancy, but it was largely a doctrinal conversation. So since 1979 or so, there has been a real recovery of the importance of ecclesiology and I think more attention to worship and what constitutes Reformed worship. So in that, in that sense, there have been some encouraging signs. So, you know, I think it's always a mixed bag, this side of glory. And I would like to think that some of the trends about ecclesiology and worship will continue. And I have great regard for Westminster, California, and think the kind of education that goes on out here is a a great boon to that cause. And if you want to give a plug here and hit the bell again, I'd say go to Westminster, California if you want to try to recover reformed confessionalism. And that's a great irony because you'd never expect that to happen in California. And I don't think Machen would have ever expected that to happen in California. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.